0: I want to um, introduce our, 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 our guests here and uh, the um, I'm going to start with the people who are relatively new to our discussion group and we'll start with uh, Marsha Eckerd and she's a practicing clinical psychologist since 1985 uh, specializing in Asperger's syndrome. <clears throat> she writes about detection and diagnosis of AD, ASD in females, attend, autism spectrum disorder in females. And she was part of a Yale Norwalk Hospital Pediatric Therapy Center. So that's part of what she does. And V.R. Feroz, I think we're just going to call you Feroz. Yes, <laughs> um, thank you. And you may have to help me with pronouncing one of these words here. The chair, <laughs> uh, chair on the board of the specialistern?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Specialist USA. It's
1: a, yeah, it's a Danish word for specialist.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs> well, it's a non-profit organization and your goal is very interesting. I never heard anybody <laughs> doing it. To create one million jobs for people with autism.
1: Yeah, all well, the yeah. And yeah. so
0: that's that's pretty good. And, and you mentioned that to me when we met a year and a half ago. And then he's the founder of the India Autism Inclusion Foundation. Again, not profit. And his aim is to bring the topic of in- inclusion to the forefront in India. I just have a Thank feeling you might be the only one doing this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like your thing. It's not like you have 20 people trying to do <laughs> the same thing. So it's, uh, it's huge. And, he, he, and he's also the senior vice president and head of SAP Engineering Academy, SAP Engineering. I think most people have heard of that. Um, So that's, that's Feroz. And um, thank you for raising your hand. Uh, (laughs) Professor Stephen Shaw. Yeah, here I am. (laughs) He has Asperger's himself. He's not ashamed of that. Proud of it, in fact. In fact, I feel a little left out. And um, he's a professor at Adelphi University and wrote Autism for Dummies and Beyond the Wall. And we're going to be referring to that book today, the Autism for Dummies book. And, uh, and Wen Lawson, I was telling Wen earlier, he's about everything. <laughs> I mean, he's a uh, psychologist. He's a researcher. He's an advocate. He's a, he's a writer. He's, a, he's an autistic lecturer. And um, he's written over 20 books. And, and now you can help me with this one, Wen. Uh, it says on your site, you're currently working on a new book on intersectionality, neurodiversity, and gender diversity. So that book, book hasn't come out yet.
2: No, due out March next year?
0: Next year. Okay. So we're, we're looking forward to that. And, um, and I'm Rob Bernstein. I have over... 30 years of in-depth experience working with a wide range of clients on the spectrum and I wrote this award-winning book, Uniquely Normal, Tapping the Reservoir of Normalcy to Treat Autism and the forward was by Temple Grandin and and I thought of that because Feroz has Temple Grandin's picture on on his wall. So let's start with with the the first question about neurodiversity. we have to define it, and it's not so easy. I'll tell you why. Because I and I think Marcia had the same experience. You talk to a physician about neurodiversity. You know what they say? What? What? <laughs> I don't know. Right? So, so Marcia, why don't you start us off in in how you could um, uh, how you could define it, or in in you know in a simple way, in a sim, you know in a Sentence or two. How, how would you define it?
3: Interesting, because uh, one of the reasons that I defining
0: on, defining neurodiversity.
3: That's what I'm getting to. Okay. One of the reasons why I took to writing professional journal articles, which are a total pain in the rear to write, is that I think most of the people in the um, even in the psychological or mental health community in this country, much less anyone else, don't know what neurodiversity is. I was doing a talk on this. And a recent PhD said, well, what's that? And they weren't even training people in that in terms of current... So how would you define different. it? Give us a... Uh, I, a would, definition. I would say that it's that it's, it's a really different model that says that it's normal for people's brains to be wired differently. And I kind of use... The, this is a crazy example, but I have brown hair and there are people who have blonde hair and there are people who have red hair. And we don't say, well, someone with red hair is a broken brown haired person. I mean, we have a idea when it comes to, you know, neurologic, neurodevelopmental pathways, that there is a right way and every other way is the wrong way. And this is an alternative theory to that, which says there are legitimate alternatives that have their strengths, they have their challenges, and so, that, um, they're I mean, all legitimate. I mean,
0: anyone could could jump in on this, but I just want to give, I'll, I just want to read this dictionary definition of it. The range of differences, the range of differences in individual brain function and behavioral traits um, are regarded as part of the normal variation. Right. So differences are differences, and they're within the normal variation.
3: Right, as, as opposed, opposed
0: to pathology. So finish this, as, as opposed to pathology, this is a, uh, something we're gonna call some kind of a disorder and fix it, or disease and fix it. So just, I just need to get the, the idea. Now, one of the questions that were given to me was the difference between neurodiversity and neurodivergent. So I'm gonna ask Wen to step in here and, and uh, neurodiversity and neurodivergent, because yeah. people, you know, again, it's, a, it's an extension of what we're talking about, to be mm. clear. Go ahead, what, yeah. what, would you have, what would you say about that?
2: When I think of the term neurodiversity, I think of inclusion. I think of the diversity of everybody's brain and, and thinking styles, etc. cetera. The term neurodivergent, just means we diverge from and away from the typical. So a lot of autistic people um, would think of themselves as neurodivergent and part of being or of the neurodiversity um, movement, if you like. So they are literally one diverges from the typical, from the usual and diversity or neurodiversity encompasses all.
0: All right. And how about the idea also that neurodiversity, as Judy, Judy Singer said, who coined the term in one thousand, nine hundred and ninety-eight, it's an approach. It's a way we look at normalcy, as opposed to. And you can give me your opinion on this. Neurodivergent can mean epilepsy. You know, it can mean any thing that isn't.
2: It's a divergent or a movement away from what is thought of as as usual but the neurodiversity um, complexity of that model just says that we're all part of neurodiversity.
0: So, all right. Uh, does anyone else wanna chime in on that or? Should yeah, I do. Play?
4: Yeah, I do. Go ahead,
0: uh, go ahead, Steve.
4: You know, when I think about neurodiversity, and this was uh, uh, partially suggested uh, before, uh, really what we're just looking at is an expression of the diversity of the human gene pool. And that there are many ways of being and being autistic is just a different way of being. It's a diverse way of being. It's not necessarily a disordered way of being. Uh, That said, there are certainly a number of things about autism that can be terribly disordering. Mm. and Some of that is caused just by societal expectations. And Mm. some of it is just real frank, disability there are disabilities that can come with being autistic but that can come uh, disabilities can also uh, come to people who have other conditions and people who are for lack of better terminology uh, non-autistic or neurotypical Uh, Mm. it's possible to have a, a disability as well
0: yeah yeah, that's well, I
3: think, I think, in in that sense, that though the, the, the um, you get into what is neurotypical, because you could say neurotypical is just one of a many neurodiversities. You know, sort of neurotypical <laughs> are, the, are the are the people who define themselves as normal. Mm. Wouldn't you say?
2: It, that's commonly thought of that way, absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose what we're about in general is wanting to. Um, redefine normal
3: Exactly. that out
2: to encompass the, a, a, a more diverse population or as a more diverse humanity really because by saying somebody is normal and somebody is not this is um, I think that is unethical to be honest I think it's really
3: mm.
2: it's very very uncomfortable and when our kids I've got um, my wife's autistic and we've got three autistic offspring and three autistic grandchildren. And I would, I mean, it's awful to think that one of our kids or, or, or each other would consider us as we're not normal. And I hear young people, young autistic people saying, um, uh, if only I could be normal, or if I was normal, I wouldn't have this problem if, and that's uh, 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 wrong thinking, unhelpful thinking, because it doesn't help build confidence, self-esteem Will deal with any of the issues that, as humans, we battle daily. Uh, all of us, wherever we, we sit in in the genome or or, or in that diversity of thinking, um, it doesn't matter where we sit. We will battle uh, things to do with self and other, and we, we we need to start with liking who we are. And uh, yeah. I, one I, love when, I love
0: what says, you said, uh, when about well, take did, it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm no, sorry, I, I, I'm. I
2: with that. Yeah.
0: I, I just love what you said about redefining normal. And we all know what I'm going to j- say, that normal is a dirty word now. Everyone uses typical. You can't use the word normal. But the way you phrase redefining normal, that could be a title of a book. And I, I want think it you know, <laughs> And I use the word normal twice in the cover of my book. So it's like, I'm sort of, yeah, let's let's bring it up again and let's talk about it. For, Ro- for Rose, what, the way you, uh, I mean, you're bringing the Indian culture here as well as the American culture. Um, Is there, you know, how do you, how does, does what does neurodiversity mean to, you know, your business or your your community? How does that work there?
1: So, you know, uh, everything that you said uh, was very interesting for me because I see the world, or at least when you're coming from India, you see the world very differently. In fact, yeah. one of the very interesting things that happen, if, especially if you're in India, is people don't label, they don't like to label people, which actually has both advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I say that if I have to compare the East and the West, the biggest difference is the East is a interdependent community. It's an inter, it's interdependency is a state of mind. Whereas in the West, independence is the most important thing, right? So one is a very independent society. Other is an interdependent society. And it's very interesting that when you're living in an interdependent society, people just believe everybody is different and unique. So there is no labeling. So actually, it's funny that people, I have grown up with sometimes people being, being different and it is very important that as you don't label them, they become part of you. Mm. It's a very f- fascinating way to mm. see that sometimes mm. labeling creates people, puts people into boxes, right? And families have yeah. always had you know disab- you call it disabled, you call it autistic. Uh, and it does and the problem the fact is as soon as you don't label anybody, they are part of you. Right. Mm. There is no difference. Yeah. And and so because we have lived in family structures where, you know, two, three generations live together, if you have fifteen people in a house, everybody is different. So why label, right? So I also see that overcomplicating it by putting so many different labels actually sometimes brackets you into silos, which is not very healthy, but also I see the positives of it that of course, if you have a unique challenge, then you know how to deal with it, right? So I think we have to be extremely careful not to overdo it because as soon as you overdo it, it becomes too complex. Like exactly you said, if we can't define what neurodiversity is, how do you expect not, you know, the regular people to even understand it, they're like, this is too complex. You know, in India, for example, and I'm sure it happened in the rest of US, there was huge debates about, should I call people with disability? Could I I call specially-abled? Could I call differently-abled? And I always say, this is all bullshit. I mean, we are wasting time on things rather than really solving the problem. There's no point, I kind of run away from panel discussions where they are like, 10 people debating, what should I call it specially-abled? Uh, people with disability, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Really it doesn't matter. If you are truly inclusive, it doesn't matter. You can call whatever you want. So I think from an academic point, it's very important, but you also have to remember, if you make it extremely complex, people just don't relate to it. Right? you have to make it extremely simple so that everybody understands it i mean that's my my take forgive me if i'm kind of no, going uh, giving a contrary point of view i'm just coming from a very different culture no, which sees it very differently
0: no it's not at all contrary and and, and the idea of a label could do harm actually because now you have a label what do you yeah. do about x adhd whatever and now yeah. you have a formula a cookie yeah. cutter approach to that label Absolutely. and the fundamental part of of who a person is, is gone. It's perfect thing that I wanted to quote from, from one's book. He talks about this older woman. She was not coping with the domestics of running a home. So the system accommodated her and say, you can get another person in your home for two hours, twice a week. Two hours or twice a week. That's, that seems reasonable. But just because of what you're saying, Rose that you're missing the soul and the heart and soul of that person. She says this person, she was afraid that this person would not understand her autism. So the fear prevented her from seeking help. Now, what does the system do about that? Sorry. You see what I mean. You know,
1: Rob, I'll give you one fascinating conversation that I was part of. And, you know, this, you know, everybody was talking about what's the future of autism, what do we do? And then this this guy came and said, you know what, I think I've found the holy grail of how to deal with autism. And I'm like, so what is that? They say, it's interdependent, uh, it's multi-generational living. And I'm like, okay, what is that? He says, no, what if three generations live together, then everybody is a support system of each other. And and then you don't have to extensively rely on social support and all that. And I'm like, but that's what countries like India has been doing for millions of it years. Is. That's and so I'm like, what is it? I mean, and I absolutely get it. And I'm saying this because, for example, my in-laws live with me, and a lot of people are like, huh, why does your in-laws live with you? But I can tell you, it's so important for my 11-year-old son who's on the spectrum and non-verbal to have a holistic family environment the reason i am able to work and my wife is able to work is also because i have great family support these are things that i absolutely take it for granted right yeah. but when i come to the west obviously it's seen as uh, sometimes uh, how does that work right
0: yeah that's good that's interesting so you're saying that's a good thing
1: I see it to be structured. yeah I, you know as long as you can live with your in-laws and not fight with them all the time it's a good thing. <laughs> no, so, no, I absolutely believe it's a good thing. Absolutely, jokes um, apart.
3: Rob, I, I want to bring something up though that's interesting though, and I since I I I wrote this article on women, or I've been writing a lot about women because so often girls and women are um, misunderstood and mislabeled in school in terms of being, mm. you know, especially given all the societal notions of what a, a girl should be. She should be nice. She should be eager to please. She should be all these things. And what I found since I wrote these things is I've got women from all over the country contacting me because they want a diagnosis. And I, I I'm on the board of uh, a wonderful autistic nonprofit called NeuroClastic. And I see in the Facebook groups, that there's a lot of women who talk about this. And the two women I most recently spoke with, they wanted a label because they wanted to be able to let go of the shame and let go of the guilt they felt. And this notion that they would be different if they just tried harder.
0: I, I think you're, you're making a really good point that people will go through, and I think Wen could talk about this, either good or, or for or against, that people will go through their life and in their 40s and their 50s, and once they understand, "Wow, I have Asperger's," I, you know, then, and Steve talked about this once, then okay, now I could live my life and understand certain things about myself, and 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 go on with. Doing things, you know, for that issue. Once I know what it is, um, but anyway, I want to go on to this other question. Thanks, Marsha, for that. Is looking at the school's culture, and I'm as I'm preparing for this, I'm wondering if school's culture, a school environment, and it's not only elementary school. It could be in, in colleges. Um, how does the the school culture um, influence you know, neuro neurodiversity. What's the relationship? And I see nobody's jumping to this, but I want to quote uh, Steve. What Steve wrote in his book Autism Done for Dummies. And now you could tell me what what you think of this. I think it's brilliant, but that's only my opinion. Even Steve doesn't think it's brilliant. Uh, Steve talks about in a classroom. There's a quiet time area, and. He said that the teacher should expect a child sitting in this area for a break from overstimulation to do his work. Now let's just think about that for a minute. How, I mean, I've been to what, hundreds of classrooms? I've been doing this for 35 years. Quiet time, what does quiet time mean? That means if a kid feels overwhelmed, what do you say to the kid? Go out, go to a quiet space, go outside the room, go sit in the principal's office, and when you're ready, come back. When you're ready, come back and join us because we're the standard. We're the standard. So the kid feels, what is wrong with me that I have to leave? And when maybe I I don't want to come back because when I come back, I just feel all this anxiety. Maybe the quiet time is where he functions best. And if the teacher says the idea, and this is what I think it's brilliant about it. Go to that quiet time area, not to take a break and then come back to our standard, as if you're a a saltwater fish and you come back to freshwater and now you're in trouble, right? That idea. Um, Go to the quiet time area and function well. Be there. Embrace that. You're different, but everyone's different. Maybe after a few weeks, somebody else will join you in your quiet time area. Now, this is the point I wanna make, and I'm thinking of when, not even Steve. Steve could comment on this too, because it's his quote. But um, I'm thinking of when, that here are kids, they're developing, instead of a kid feeling what's wrong with me, I take a break, I come back and I'm still anxious, for a kid to say, wait, the way I learn best, the way I function best, is that I need a quiet space. Why does the kid have to wait till he's 10, 20, 30 years old to realize who he is and how he works best? Why mm-hmm. can't he learn that when he's six years old? That, oh, it's okay. That's how I learn. And have the teacher teach this children, this child, how he learns best and functions best. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Paul, go ahead.
2: Rob, yeah, no, Rob, you would we're talking about changing the whole education system here because uh, it's the system that is at fault. It's not the kids. It's not how teachers teach. It's what's expected of a school to deliver on curriculum in a particular way. And they're under incredible pressure to do that. So, um, uh, until you change the system, you have got individual teachers already doing exactly what you're saying. They're out there they're doing this and they're helping kids discover who they are and how best they operate and learn. But until the system changes, it can't be a universal kind of thing because at least in Western culture, this is how how schools
0: operate. Steve, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I do. It's your
4: quote. Um, Well, one thing that comes to mind uh, that would be uh, helpful uh, for education is to think about universal design. Mm. Uh, uh, Designing the environment, uh, when designing curriculum, because uh, the more ways that we can provide for students to take information in, then to process it, and then to demonstrate that they've mastered the material, better off will be. And that will work much better than uh, what most people do, and that is retrofit uh, curriculum that tends to be narrowly defined to uh, usually the middle third of the class. Yeah. So yeah. and it will make it more interesting for everybody else as well
2: yeah
4: so it increases yeah. accessibility and it makes it more interesting for everybody, and in that way, uh, more people can be working from the same culture hmm.
1: yeah maybe rob if i have if I can weigh in from my own experience yep, with after. my yeah if my my son is now eleven years old nonverbal on the spectrum. Uh, He's just in sixth grade and let me share my own experience. And I I must confess that, uh, you know, I moved from India to US so that he gets into an education system in India, he would not, there is no schools that could have handled him. So I'm extremely grateful for the services that this country provides. And I can tell you, it's still way ahead of many parts of the world. So it's it works fantastically, but I still believe there are areas of improvement. One of the things that I found with my son is that he's in the sixth grade, but his school uh, that he goes to treats him like a first grade student. So we did a uh, independent private, uh, you know, test about his cognitive abilities and so on. And they like, he's off the charts. He's like, he's sixth, seventh standard, cognitive ability, maths and science and English and so on. But his school treats him like a, uh, is like a first grade because of his, him being non-verbal. And where I think we should do is a school should presume competence first. Assume competence instead of assuming incompetence, right? It's a, it's a flip, but if you assume competence, yeah. you really don't run the risk of treating somebody as dumb when he's not right? Mm. And I think that's a fundamental shift that schools have to make. And like you said, when it's really not the schools or the teachers, I think they're all well-meaning, they're very hardworking, they do the best, but I think we've created systems which are completely outdated. Uh, The public school system is pretty much a government-run bureaucratic organization, uh, unlike private organizations, which are far ahead of everybody else, and they're innovating school education systems, there is no innovation. They're still like 10 years behind. And even if they have to change something, it's going to take you five to 10 years. So there is no way they can catch up with all the innovations that are happening. So you can't blame the teachers. It's actually the system that uh, that is pretty, it takes years to change that system. And, and nobody is incentivized to change the system actually. That's the problem. There's no incentive to change.
0: That's interesting. I think the reason why people do not look at the, the challenge of the child and they start down below is exactly what I, I went to a pretty good graduate school. But what mm-hmm. I learned, start low and then work your way up. And I and I totally disagree with that because they yeah. say it's bad for the self-esteem. So somebody has to prove to me that if you start with something, let's say the kid has no idea of, let's say you're, you're teaching this kid Hindi and he has no clue, right? Is that bad for this kid's self-esteem? He, he just yeah. doesn't get it yeah that's the philosophy behind it let's start low and let's go up i'm saying start high and work your way down
1: yeah so um, absolutely agree
3: um so Marsha, did you want to weigh in on that well i was going to say that you know kids aren't i mean in my experience kids aren't low or high they have all kinds of different levels of aptitudes and different things and one of the things that i see that's most troubling is I see kids kind of treated at the level of their lowest common denominator. So if you're really weak in writing, everything goes down as opposed to recognize, recognizing children for their strengths and then giving them some help in the areas they need help. Yeah.
0: So I want to mention one thing that I want to come back to. What, exactly what Wen said in the beginning. We need a systematic change. In, 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 this, in everything, in what with the schools and so forth. And that's where I wanna go with neurodiversity, that I see it as, as a movement. That, that I feel really kind of passionate about this. And other people probably feel much more than I do, that it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude, it's a systematic change that we may be looking for through this idea of neurodiversity. But um, I just wanna, before that, I just want to talk about if, if Gwen or Steve in particular have a personal story that you went through, maybe as a kid, maybe as an adult, where uh, you were young, like the stories that we're telling, uh, that you wish that, why did it take me so long to understand who I was? The teacher could have done this. Is are there any personal stories that you could share to illustrate how Something happened that was great, in terms of neuro, or, or that that you had to suffer through.
2: You you go first, Steve. No, oh,
4: I'm trying. I'm trying to think of an example because there's uh, so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's hard to choose the one. Whether whether it was uh, having difficulty in math and uh, being told that. Uh, I would never learn how to do math, but at the same time, I had a stack of astronomy books on my desk that I was busy taking notes and popping diagrams of. And uh, the question if the teacher would only do, uh, the answer to that is have enough awareness to note this highly focused interest, which is, is very mathematical in nature, and find a way to teach mathematics through this particular interest. So uh, that's an example of uh, of uh, school. Uh, later on, uh, in a work situation, uh, I was very friendly with uh, the Dean of business, and this was in a this was in a previous life when I was a music professor. And uh, he and I would talk um, about this and that, and we came up with the idea of uh, setting up a music uh business major uh, which would have been really cool he liked the idea i liked the idea and we talked about it some more and uh so i said okay uh, do you want to do it let's propose it for next semester and he he told me that he was uh, too busy with things now but uh, we could look at it maybe next semester and then do it beyond and it seemed like he was telling the truth. He wasn't just putting me off. So that was all good. Uh, well, then it came time to write up a report as to what I was doing. Uh, like you, you always have to do at at college. You have to say what you did for the past year. And you notate it all. So I recounted my uh, great discussions with the business dean and how he was not ready right now because he had too many things to do. And as a result, uh, we could, maybe we could do it next semester or, or next year. And it seemed to be a pretty innocuous thing to write. Uh, however, that did find its way out up to the vice president, who uh, then gave the business dean a good yelling at, uh, because he wasn't working hard enough. And then the business dean got mad at me because somebody yelled at him mm. and accused me of Making it look like that he's lazy. So these are subtle office politic type things that us autistic people often. Now, do. now here's
0: a here's a personal question, if you don't mind. Oh go ahead. Um, this is something that I would do. I mean I've done I have done stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So looking back at it, does that have anything to do with Asperger's, Is that you were just being honest and open and honest and direct?
4: Uh, uh, it's, it's hard to say. I think, yeah. uh, you know, maybe what was missing and what I am now aware of uh, the hard way is that anything you write, especially in a work situation, consider it public and also consider possible negative ramifications for somebody else uh, in the process as you're writing things. Yeah. So I don't know if that's an Aspergerish thing
0: that caused it, or if it was, or what it was. So, when yeah. do you want
2: to, uh, yes,
0: chime in? Um,
2: I think it's also being literal, Steve. You you believed the literal presentation that you were offered, and yeah. uh, because there's no guile in that, you were able to record it as was, and uh, other people can have a problem with that. Um, for me, I was told, you know, I didn't. Talked till closer to my fifth birthday. Um, I was in diapers, nappies till so, a similar age, um, and I was not expected to learn and I was kept way down in special school classes and um, I was always told I was a dunce and couldn't achieve. And it took one teacher who saw me differently and took time um, just to sit and go over stories with me and help me build connections. I'll never forget her her taking that time. Because when a light went on for me, it went on and it continued to grow. So I finished year 11 and 12 when I was 38 and 39 years old. And I got into uni, not at 18, but at 40. Um, So everything, everything- I'm sorry,
0: grade, grade 11 and 12? You say year eleven grade eleven twelve.
2: Okay. Yeah, the last two years of high school we call it in Australia.
0: Right, I understand.
2: Yeah. So everything delayed, but had uh, I can't help but wonder, um, uh, similar, Steve, if someone had focused on my strengths and what I was able to do, and used that as a means to help me do things that I couldn't do, I think I would have got there a lot quicker. Um, Mm. So. if I don't have an interest in something, I, I find it very hard to connect to anything else. But using that interest as a bit of a bridge is the way that I connect to an understanding. And I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, I'm ADHD, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, my head is in, my thinking is constantly on the go and in various other places once. Bringing those things together and enabling me, I, I, um, would have, I believe, achieved in my life a, a, a better sense of self at an earlier age um, than than I had done because no one expected of me. Nobody thought I could do anything. And when I did qualify as a psychologist, uh, at least toward the end of that, the having to practice, I had to apply for agencies to go and practice uh, as a probationary psychologist.
0: You stop. Has anyone seen that as well?
1: No, yeah, I think.
0: Back. Yeah. Right. I think it's frozen. Yeah. So we just wait.
4: Well, I'll i fill in until when can come back. Okay. <laughs> Good. And uh, back, what uh, might have been Masha who said it uh, was to presume competence, and uh, we need to turn the
0: conversation. That was ferocious. I Froze too? That was Feroz who was talking about. Oh, it was Feroz. Okay, Feroz is the... His model. kid is so bright, but they, they look at him in the lowest denominator. Yeah, I was the denominator.
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah. So, uh, uh, turning away from the deficit model of autism and towards an ability-based model and asking yeah. the question, what can the autistic person do? Yeah. And then working from there and viewing those challenges, which are real and they can be significant, because if they weren't, we wouldn't be here trying to figure it out. But looking at them as barriers that need to be torn down so the person can be successful in communicating or mathematics or whatever the situation might be.
0: Yeah. So so far, to keep the conversation going until uh, when arrives again, Um, We have this interest-based model and ability-based model, Um, which is very interesting to me. You said
4: interest-based? What is
0: that? Well, what you just said, that look at the kid's ability rather than what he can't do. Let's look at what the kid can do.
4: Okay, so what was the term? Because By the time it made its way over to here... It sounded like interspace, like interspace.
0: <laughs> well, I, I said ability-based, which is what you just yeah. said.
4: Right.
0: And what we had said earlier um, is is see what the interest of the kid is involved. Oh, in that. Based. Oh, okay, interest-based well, right. and ability-based.
4: All right. Some of the consonants didn't make it through.
0: But what's interesting to me, and this could be very controversial, and I'd be curious to hear what Farouk says about this because he's in tune with this, yeah. is that. Both of those things, ability and interest, is from the kid's point of view. And I don't know um, what you think about this. The other side of that is what's been traditional education all this time, and I call it curriculum-based. What does curriculum mean? I know, I have a list of what you need to learn, and I'm gonna teach you this, this, and this. It's my curriculum that you have to learn. To me, that's opposing, and to some extent, to some extent, Oh, what are you interested in?
3: What you? What's your ability? You know, it's it's a different kind of way of thinking of things. Well, I I, I just like to piggyback on that because here in Connecticut, there's a uh, there's something in the Department of Education standards, that talks about teaching to children uh, based on their best way of learning and interests, but that has absolutely nothing to do with what goes on in schools and there's no um, teeth or there's no nothing to make people do that. In fact, what happens is there's a common core curriculum that has to be taught in a particular way. So if the particular thing is you have to write a first person narrative essay, that's it. And the idea of someone learning in their own way based on their own interests or anything like that is just completely off the table. at least uh, uh, around here, how about other places?
1: So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you two, two or three insights into this. So I've, I run now the um, you know, SAP Academy for Engineering, which is the learning organization within SAP. So I got into this from a pure engineering role to a learning organization. And you know, I had no understanding of it. So I spent the last one and a half years trying to understand how does learning function. And it was pretty clear to me that learning is actually the graveyard of all projects because almost every person who's involved with learning eventually fails because there is, it's, it's, the reason is it's incredibly complex, right? Um, So while I understand things are not perfect and not the way it should be, but I also should say it's incredibly complex. And one of my core insights here is learning has to be what I call as precision learning, which means it is personalized learning because every kid, every adult learns very differently. Right, but our schools are structured in a way where everybody gets the same education, everybody gets the same curriculum. But that's just not true. You learn differently, I learn differently. Everybody has different, you know, pace of learning, different interests, different abilities. And that's where I come to the whole idea called precision learning, which is something like precision medicine, which means the medicine that you eat has to be specific to your body structure, to your history, to, to the challenges that you've had. And we have got to a point where today we can have personalized medicine. And I think the same is required for learning as well, where it's extremely personalized and extremely precision driven, which means there is enough data to tell you, this is the best way a person could learn and this is how, how I would help. And I think technology can, can make that possible. And I'm pretty sure that maybe in the next few decades, maybe in the next decade or so, this will actually become a reality, which means you don't have to have one curriculum for everybody in a classroom, but you can have different journeys to, for different individual based on his or her ability to learn.
0: Wow. Yeah. So that's an example where the medical model really does work. In yes. terms of yes. individualized Uh, specific, but, but the goals have to make sense. In other words, if the goal is like a a kid that I just saw in India. Yeah. uh, Their goal was, what is the, there's a kid who can't really talk and have a back and forth conversation and says almost, almost nothing. What, what, tell me the day that comes before Wednesday. Yeah. If that's the goal. And then you do this medical model thing and, you know, yeah. if, that's, if that's your criteria for success yeah. as opposed to have the kid tell you when they're hurt, yeah. then, then, you know, your value system may be off. We have to, we have, to yeah. have that value system first of what we think is meaningful, in my yeah. view, meaningful yeah. and, quote, good education.
1: So the way this easiest, the simplest way to explain that, I always say, is assuming you want to go to the airport from your home, right? So you book an Uber, and Uber comes and takes you to the airport. Now the re, the way I the way it should you should remember is, you it should not matter which route you take. I can go from one route, the other person can go to from the other route. Somebody can reach ten minutes earlier. Somebody can reach ten minutes later as long as you reach the destination, it doesn't matter which route you take it. uh, So the teacher's objective is to ensure that the person reaches the destination, but you can take any route you want. You can take as long as you want. Like, you know, uh, just now Wen said that he did his 12th standard at the age of 40 and that's great, why not? I mean, that's okay too, right? So the problem is today we say, Every student has to reach the destination at the same day. He has to finish the curriculum on the same, and everybody has to study the same curriculum. They have to give the same exam. And that's just not relevant because human beings learn differently. I learn differently. You, Rob, will learn differently. My son learns differently. But everybody has to take the same path. How stupid is that?
0: Last exchange with this, because I want other people to come in. (laughs) I think this is an important point. This is an important point. The question is, and this is what I do with my life, really. The question is, how does that kid learn? It's not up to the kid. That has to be up to the teacher to understand how that kid learns. It takes me about 40 hours often of thinking and figuring out to understand how that kid's mind works. You know what I mean? That's That's where the whole skill comes in, in terms of my whole practice. So I know this firsthand. You're right, but now you have to understand how each individual kid learns, and we talk about an individualized education program. That's what it really means, right? So that's the trick to what you're saying. If we could do both of those, then you have a miraculous situation.
1: Yeah, it's a balancing act of what it is. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Again, I mean, the way, uh, yeah, I I don't want to hijack the discussion. This is obviously we can spend two hours or even two days (laughs) discussing and debating that, but I will kind of pause and listen to other people's point of view as well. Uh,
0: I want to go on to another important topic. And if Steve, I'm trying to look for Wen's number um, to give him a call. I don't have his number handy. Uh, I, I gave him another invitation. But um, something's going on with him. Maybe we could tell him to use a different device to get on. But I want to go on to something that I think is brewing in the back of my mind, is that this neurodiversity kind of paradigm, is this against like the medical paradigm that says, no, 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 it's not just difference. It really is a pathological issue and, and we have to look at it as, as a disease base. And maybe if we all do this again, I'll invite a physician. <laughs> uh, it's, I tried for this time, and it's very hard to get through to somebody who can represent the medical paradigm because there's something of value there too. Um, so what do you think about that, the neurodiversity and the medical paradigm, and um, and if it's if did, maybe they work together. I don't know, but that's my question. Are they really kind of opposed to each other? And, oh, good. Oh, good. Go ahead, Steve.
4: So when I think about the medical paradigm, uh, the medical paradigm hunts for uh, problems mm. and things that are broken. And in medical situations, like if you have a broken heart valve or a broken disc in your back or a broken bone, uh you really do have to go fix it you don't say well this is a diverse presentation of the bone structure or the heart structure and we're going to respect it for what it is because there may be some value to uh, this difference Uh, whereas the neurodiversity model uh, just looks at differences as they are uh, without value at least i do anyways Uh, they're not good they're not bad they just exist And then the question is, what good can we make from this difference? So that's what I see uh, about uh, differences between uh, between the two. And can they work together? Well, sure, if a difference is causing problems uh, for the autistic person. So let's say one of those differences is a lack of ability to communicate. Oh, that's something we got to fix. We do have to fix that. However, we can be diverse in how we address the issue. And for many autistic people, uh, talking like we're talking now is just not going to work due to neurological differences. So, the beauty of neurodiversity is we can think is there another way that the autistic person can communicate? And I know many. Autistic people who communicate by pointing at pictures, typing on a keyboard, and various uh, alternate ways of communicating and once we figure out uh, uh, that reliable means of communication, then often we find that that person is just as smart as the rest of us, maybe smarter
0: and I and this relates to Marion. I remember Tony Atwood responded to that and saying even through music or even through art, sure. you can communicate and, and relate. So uh, yeah. Now I want to uh, bring up something unless somebody has a burning thing to say about the medical versus I think you well I have laid I, it I, out really I, nicely. I, I just want to go on here, Marcia, only only because hold on, I have a special guest I want to bring in. I just want to get to this guy. So, you know, we could go back to it, but I just want to make sure I, I go forward with this for a second. Um, so, uh, here's part of the core of what I want to bring out in this little seminar that would you say there's a neurodiversity movement, you know, Um, is there a paradigm shift? That's what I'm looking for. I, I began, before inclusion was a, a word used, I began a, in the early 70s, a visiting program between cerebral palsy kids and typical you know, kids in another school. I called it a visiting program. Inclusion wasn't even a word then. That was good for the individual kids. That was good for those kids, those families. But I'm talking about, and I think we're bringing it out now, systematic change. Could yeah. we have a movement that really changes the system. And when I say systematic change, we know it all comes to mind. Simon Baron Cohen, we were talking to Feroz earlier, the notion of neurodiversity is very compatible with, you know what I'm going to say, the civil rights pleas for minorities. Now this might be a big jump, but here he says that. The civil rights pleas for minorities to be accorded dignity and acceptance. So with that, I'm going to see if I can get uh, Bob Smith to come on. I don't know if his picture's going to come on, um, or just his voice. But um, uh, Bob is here uh, now. Let's see. Ask, I'm going to ask you to unmute. Bob. Hi.
5: Am I unmuted?
0: So, so did you hear that last? And everybody could could participate. What do you think of the idea? How could, what could we learn? Let's put it this way. From the, look, I was part of the Vietnam War Movement. And we all have been part of movements. Um, You were there, Bob. You marched with Martin Luther King in Selma. You're John Lewis's protege. You were arrested 14 times. You had a gun pointing to your head. You're part of this movement. What, what could you add to this conversation that we can learn from looking at this neurodiversity movement, which is recent? We said, uh, Marsha said earlier, there are people who never even heard the word neurodiversity. What could you tell us to help us along in our, in this movement? Uh, am I being heard now? You're being heard, not seen, but heard. That's fine.
5: Okay, I, I would say that uh, one thing that would be most helpful is and i see you folks being there together is to be together uh we talk about change uh and dr lawson uh and uh miss ella baker were some of our change advocates you you don't even know those names but they were the people who were there who were telling us young folk what how we needed to behave uh in that civil rights movement to be nonviolent. Uh, they were there for that. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was there for that. Uh, she talked about the fact that she was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Now people hear that all of the time, but that came from Mrs. Hamer. Uh, Dr. King was a re- very good tactician, if that's the word. Uh, he planned stuff. He's planned strategy. Uh, we went to Selma, uh, to protest, uh, Jim Lee Jackson being killed and it turned out to be a movement to get voter registration uh, on, on the ballot so that we can all be registered uh, to vote as citizens of this country. Uh, I would say that the, that the thing is for, uh, that I see here, and as, as I've heard you folks talk, is to remain uh, uh, together. You're going to have different voices, but you have a common goal. And that goal is to, uh, well, you have a common goal. Uh, one of the pieces that's important to me is to have the families uh, being active and supporting their uh, children or their adults. That's an important piece.
0: I missed that word. Did you say families active? To have
5: the families, have the mothers, the fathers, uh, the grandparents being active in supporting what's going on uh, to get the services. Because the school system is not that interested in providing those services because it costs money. Uh, oftentimes, what they do, and I had kind of written that as one of my questions. Oftentimes, what they do is they send those people to uh, to jail, to reform school. Uh, they try to get, they try not to provide the services that's needed. Uh, uh, one example I have is that a young young woman, black woman, called the police because her boyfriend was breaking a window. Let's say, and uh, when the police left, so did the young man but well, he left in a body bag, he was dead. So you ask us to trust the police. So I'm saying to you, why should, should the community, your community trust the school system to provide services when they're not really about wanting to do that. They're wanting about, they're about wow. uh, provide services to what they call normal kids.
0: So I'm gonna ask um, for Rose first to, if you have any comment or impression or question or You know, what do you think about that? Bob talked about four or five different things.
1: No, no, absolutely. I mean, I've been uh, studying social movements for almost two decades, and it started with Gandhi's Salt March, and I was trying to study how did... Uh, how did Gandhi manage to mobilize a whole nation of 350 million people towards a common cause when there was, you know, no social media, nothing, right? I mean, how did he mobilize everybody? And, and it's the same thing that happened with the civil rights movement. It's the same thing that happened with the Women's March. And there were a few fundamental commonalities and I'll try because what I'm trying to do in India is also to build a social movement because India is a you know it's a small country with 1.3 billion people so you know if you have to reach 1.3 billion people how do you mobilize everybody towards a common cause and I think Bob had said this so perfectly. The first problem that I realized is that the entire disability community, and I'm using the word disability because it's not just autism, but everything, every other uh, section, they have a scarcity mindset. A scarcity mindset is I will be successful on, only if somebody else fails, right? And, and I've had long discussions with Senator Harkin and he told me how the ADA was actually framed. He said, Farouz, when I was trying to pass the American Disabilities Act, you could have so many, conf- the biggest conflict was between, within the disability community itself. So it's the, 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 the blind community, the hearing impaired, the visually impaired, the autism, all of them wanted their piece of the cake. And then he said, the only thing I did was I put them into a room and I said, I'm going to come back in one hour. If you don't guys come together, this is off the table. And then they came together. And this is exactly what Bob Smith said right now. You have to be together. This is not about, you know, if the autism community will win only if the cerebral policy committee loses or the blind community loses. And unfortunately, this is not. I'm not talking about U.S. or India. Everywhere around the world, I found that they have a scarcity mindset. But if you actually do it the other way around and say, if all of us are together all of us will be successful. I think that's so, it's easy to say, but I can tell you it's incredibly hard. Hmm. So that's clearly comment. the most important aspect. yeah.
0: What's, why I asked Bob to come in here in the first place was I saw him protest in front of his local court with the Black Lives Matter movement. He was the only one there with, you know, with his sign and all that. And he was interviewed on local radio and he said something I haven't heard anywhere with this Black Lives movement. They said, why are you here, Bob? And he says, I'm protesting against the Black Lives Movement and all the other minorities and oppressed people, like yeah. women and people with disabilities. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, wow. He's the only one, at least I've heard, that brought just what you're saying, Feroz. He's saying, yeah. why don't we all come together? Yeah. We're all We all are, you know oppressed or or, or missing out or being unnoticed so that's absolutely
1: so powerful so i'll I'll tell you because if you if if, and that's why i have personally looked at myself as fighting for all disabilities even though you know everybody knows me as the one who started the autism at work i said if if it's only autism that's one percent of the population but if it's all disabilities then you're already 15 percent of the population, and you need numbers for this. A movement cannot happen with very small numbers. How do you expand it? Get everybody in, that's it. So it is not about autism, it's not about cerebral palsy, it's not about VI, it's not about H, it's all minorities. I say anybody who is marginalized, we have to fight for them.
5: Mm. I would agree. Uh, one of the
1: things about Dr. King-
0: Put uh, could you, could your could you, camera, Forward your your computer forward to see your whole face. Yeah. I can see your chin. That's it. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: One of the things about
5: Dr. Yeah. King is that he was a person who would listen, uh, and he would formulate what other folk and the groups were saying together, and then we would have come out with a plan. Uh, I didn't know when we went to Selma that we were going to march all. Well, I knew we were going to march from Selma to Montgomery, but I had no idea that we were going to change. Uh, and have a Voter's Rights Act. Martin looked at what was going on, and that was part of it. So he had people like John Lewis, Stoker Carmichael, uh, NAACP, uh, CORE, uh, all these organizations, and they were different organizations, but we had, we worked together to make a change. And that's really what Farouk is talking about. we worked together
1: to make a change. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And Martin had that vision. Yes,
1: he did. So he what had. you're,
0: what what you're saying, and maybe what Feroz is saying, that we need, maybe somebody, yes, with that with that kind of vision.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, because you know you have to you have to have somebody who sees the big picture, who ties all of the smaller parts together, uh, and that's that's clearly the visionaries role, you know, get everybody together. Otherwise everybody has this, just their personal agenda and that doesn't move the needle.
0: In the, when I marched on, in Washington against the Vietnam war, we had music. I don't know if this has anything to do. We had John Lennon sing, give peace a chance on the mall yeah. of Washington when the peace sign actually meant something. We had these people um, through their music and leadership you know, that, um, that embraced, that touched everybody. So I'm not sure of the way to do that. Is it going to be a leader to galvanize people? We don't have a song. We don't have yeah. a Bob Dylan. You know, Bob Dylan was asked to lead this movement that what yeah. we're talking about. And you know what Bob yeah. Dylan said? I already had my fight. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I had yeah, my yeah. fight in the '60s. You know, somebody has to pick that up. So the question of how is, yeah. or who, is, is an important one. Steve, did you want to hang, uh, say something?
4: Yeah, yeah, I certainly do. Oh. Uh, and that is uh, uh, whether it's uh, groups of uh, you know, different disability categories or any categories at all, or whether it's in my university, uh, I always feel that we can do so much more by working together than any one of us can do alone.
3: Yeah. yeah, I find that there's a lot of resistance to this, though, that, you know, it, it, everybody has their turf staked out, and
1: yeah. right. we've,
3: got, we've got one crossover going on right now. I'm very involved in some cases that are hashtag black, black autistic lives matter or black disabled lives matter because there are many people who are black and something else. And in this case, we're talking about some black uh, autistic teenagers. Who ran who ran into the the you know the prejudices and the systemic uh, kinds of things in the court system, but you know I, I totally agree, but what I find is that you've got the people where this is their issue, and yeah. you know, it's it's gonna it's a challenge to bring people together
1: yeah no I, I let me tell you with that, I mean I've been studying as to why disability has not become a movement in India, right? And there are two fundamental reasons for that. And this is again across all all social movements. Every social movement, they say you need to either have a common enemy or collective pride, okay? So if you ask why did a million people walk when Trump was uh, elected the next day, you know, we had the largest march of you know people around the world. It's the largest single day march around the world. And you may ask, how did so many million people just walk? And it's pretty clear because the enemy was one. Everybody knew who the enemy was, right? Now, the reason why this has not worked in a country like India, is you don't know who the enemy is, right? So everybody is so fragmented uh, that nobody knows, okay, what am I fighting for? Because everybody's fighting their own battles. So they're not coming together on, an, on a common platform. So that's the number one problem. The second is that there is that you have to have anger. Anger is good for change. If you look at the civil rights movement, there was anger. There was, you know, why, why did suddenly black life movement come up with, you know, George Floyd's killing? Because there was anger in the system. Anger is good, but anger can only work when people come together and then you drive change. In the absence of either of them, it's never going to be a movement. You know, when when the Gandhi reason he was able to get 350 million people together was he said, oh, I just need, I know my enemy is a British, that's it. If you have 100 enemies, then you don't know whom you're fighting. Or in, in India's case, everybody says, oh, the system is a problem. If the system is a problem, you can never change it. It's just too complex, right? So the art is to get people together and have a simple message so that people can come together and fight for driving change. And that's the art, that's what Martin Luther King does. That's what visionary leaders like Gandhi do. They know how to simplify a very complex thing to get people rally around a common cause.
0: So we're all talking about systematic change with this neurodiversity movement and what you said about the schools, but you're saying that's just
1: the beginning no i'm saying systematic change is the final outcome right. but as i said if if you can't def- if if you're not able to define it in simple terms you will not get million people to rally around it it's not possible because it's just too complex for people to understand so the art is to you know get people together for a simple message but of course the problem you're solving is incredibly complex right so let me give you an example from gandhi's salt march. So people said, why did he do a salt march? I don't know if you know the history. He said, uh, he got 350 million people together with a simple message. He said, we will not pay tax on salt. Salt is a basic human right. And so everybody said, why did he pick up salt? And he said, salt is one thing that all 350 million people use. So you have to get a topic which touches everybody. But if you say, I am autistic, I am black autistic, I am black blind autistic, then that's too narrow a scope to get people together. It will not work. It will work for that individual, but not for the collective movement. For building movements, you have to have something which is broad so you can get more people included in driving change.
3: I think there's another, Another piece to it, though, which I think you're probably very involved in. I've, I've done a lot of research on uh, uh, imp- neuro, empl- neurodiversity and, and unemployment. And yes. I know that both Special Eastern and uh, yes. <laughs> SAP. And, and I yes. think one of the issues is that people tend to be most prejudiced when they don't know who the other people are. Yes. And so that as I think, you know, I mean, this is just one of many levels. I agree with you that it's very complex, but I think as there's there's many more companies becoming involved in the idea that neurodiverse employees can be incredibly valuable employees. In yes. fact they're can be more productive yes. than what we would call the uh, neurotypical employee. As people start to work together, as businesses start to include people like that, then there might start being the experience of, well, hey, wait a minute, this is a, this is a person. This is a real person. He actually has something yeah. to contribute to our team. And so I think there are all kinds of levels where, where this is going to happen. And, and I think I that the, the level of some of what you're doing is a critical level.
0: So Bob, do you have any uh, closing remarks? And anyone else could um, say whatever whatever you want about this topic or, or anything else. And before the we... only
5: thing I would add uh, to, <clears throat> to say is that what Dr. King did was he listened to what the populace wanted, and after he heard what people had to say, he put it into a real practice and followed that. But he kept it nonviolently. But uh, he listened. He listened and he followed. Like Farouk here is saying that uh, Gundy Feroz, did. Feroz. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I'm sorry. How of you course. say the name? Feroz. Feroz. Broke. Feroz, okay. Feroz. Yeah. <laughs> Feroz. That's a
1: tongue twister. Yes. Well, I'm yes, Mississippi.
5: Yes. And I have a hard time just <laughs> pronouncing things. Period. But thank you. That's not Bob.
0: Uh, Can I let you yes. know? Oh, that? oh. A quick question for for Bob before you go. Before we all go, do you think? The voting, when I think of the civil rights movement, I think of voting as the key issue that was, as Feroz would say, universal. Do you think that was part of why it worked in terms of voting? Yes. Uh, we had, in my hometown, there were,
5: let's say, there were 5,000 Black folk, and only 100 were registered to vote. You know, So people were pushing against uh, not being able to vote. And uh, that was a movement that that was something that brought us all together. We wanted to have the same rights that uh, that white folk here in the South had. Uh, So we wanted to end Jim Crow. I couldn't. Well, that's a whole other topic. But yeah, we wanted to end the Jim Crow South. So voting was very important. And Marion, you
0: wanted to say something? Yes, I wanted to let you know that when is in the participants. He did okay. he was not? Able oh, to yeah, good. Let me see if I can find him. Okay, uh huh. Okay, good job, good job, Marion. Thank you so much. Okay, yeah. now he should be with us. Um, and um, uh, Steve, do you want to? Uh, I don't, I feel like we're we're I'm so glad that Wen is, should be on board now. Yeah, there he is. Okay.
2: Thank you, so sorry. I have been listening in the background.
0: Good, good. All right, all right. Uh, so, so Wen, since you're on, since you have the floor and we're doing some closing <laughs> remarks and maybe on on what, anything that we've talked about, you wanna just,
2: oh, go, just go for it? Massive agreement in coming together as one in accepting of acceptance of difference and letting those differences, not divide, but bring us together. That's what the neurodiversity, and it is a movement, is all about. And we have individuals across the world doing just that, whether there'll be one person that might unite us, somebody like, you know, Greta is doing a brilliant job with climate change and so on. Um, uh, there There just has to be that coming together as an echo of everything everybody has said. And I've been really, just watching. It was interesting being a participant um, rather than a panelist because I get to see uh, the individual on the whole screen when each time person is speaking. And yeah, and I felt privileged to to listen to you, Bob, as well. Thank you so much for taking part. I felt right, Jeff.
3: I'd, I'd like to make a point on 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 what Bob said though, because I think there's something to be to be learned from you know for us as well, and that is there are I, I have no idea. How many people there are who one would cons- who who are autistic who come into all these different categories that we're talking about in terms of neurodiversity, but if all of us who are over 18 and in this country anyway voted and voted and put some pressure for inclusivity to be more part of schools, to be more part of textbooks, to be more mm-hmm. part of work employment, to be more part, part of things, we could have some power. And I, I have a, a strong feeling that probably there isn't that kind of use of personal power brought together. And we certainly mm-hmm. could use it. I know for this one kid that uh, I've been involved with, this teenager, there were 180,000 names on that petition. Many of them were, um, were people who are autistic. If all of them voted and put pressure to see inclusion in the school systems, you see what I mean? We have to, we have to use the power we have.
0: I think Mm -hmm. you're bringing up the key question is, is how? you know how do we get systematic change and ferrose put it beautifully it's not it's not enough to just say we need systematic change you know we need that element that universal element the salt you know what the enemy the something in education say if we call if we want to focus on education the question is how and i'm not expecting an answer but if we bring that question up there might be somebody who could you know, focus on that, or have us focus
1: on that. So I'll, I'll maybe add one uh, point to that, Rob, and I'll agree with what Masha just said. The way we've been trying to change the narrative in India is through voting. And let me explain how we're trying to Wait, I didn't
0: miss that
1: it. word, Is through what? Voting. It's through voting, Is through voting, right? By voting.
0: What? What? voting.
1: What? Voting, vote, vote, voting. Voting, no, is it voting? V-
0: voting. Oh, voting, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> I, I want to I understand every word you say. Go ahead. Sounds
1: like a <laughs> Mississippian to me. <laughs> <laughs> so here is here is simple data. We said that if you look at the World Health Organization data, 15 percent of the world's population has some disability, or the other. Okay, that's the WHO numbers. Every person with disability affects at least four people. For example, my son is autistic, it affects me, it affects my wife, it affects my in-laws who live with me. So it affects four people directly, and I'm not even talking about indirectly. So technically, 60% of the world's population is affected directly by people with disabilities. So they have a voice. Yeah. They have, and these are the 60% that should always vote for progressive, disability friendly, policies and people who support that. It's pretty simple. The maths is there, but the problem is most people don't think that way. They mostly assume they don't have the power because they are only looking at one small section. And that will not change the needle. As I said, if you look at the autism community, then it's only 1%. But if I look at the disability community, well, that's 15%. And then if you expand it to four times, that's 60%. Then you have strength. Then you have the numbers to change the narrative.
0: So I'm going to let uh, Steve have the uh, last word here.
4: <clears throat> hey, uh, well, uh, great discussion. And I, I echo what is being said, the really important things that are being said uh, from all of us, uh, Bob, Wen, Marsha, Rose, Marion, and uh, you too, don't forget about Rob up there. who's uh, brought us all together. And really, it's about working together. That's the key word, together. And working with each other, just like we work with the characteristics of autism in a strength-based approach, as opposed to working against each other, which Mm -hmm. is what Feroz so eloquently has been talking about what we shouldn't be doing. And uh, Feroz has spent a lot of time telling us, talking about what we should do. And that is... Working together.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you uh, for that wonderful summary. And um, I see we don't have many questions. They agree with uh, most of what we're saying. I think um, why don't we end it here, um, unless Marion, you know, has a burning question from one of the participants. But I think uh, I just want to. I had no idea how this was going to go, but I'm unfulfilled with, <laughs> yeah. with knowledge and excitement I didn't have before this discussion. Yeah. I do not know about you guys, but um, I thank personally you. thank everybody and, and I hope uh, I hope we can do this again and, and continue the discussion.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Rob, for inviting us and such an honor to meet all of you, uh, Bob and, and Marcia and Ben and Stefan and Marion.
0: It's yeah, uh, right. such a delight.
1: Good to see you, my friend. It's an honor having you here. Thank you.
0: I hope you found value in that episode. Make sure to like and follow me on Facebook, Rob Bernstein-Autism Speech, and on Instagram, at Autism Speech. For updates and live Zoom calls with me, feel free to email me any questions to RJB at autismspeech.com. That's R-J-B at autismspeech.com. See you next time.